This is an ABC podcast. Every high school has its groups. Athletes, cool kids, nerds, misfits. It's kind of a cliche, but it's true. Dr. Mark Williams' group were the truants. Yeah, my in-group was the wrong in-group for kids at that age to be involved in. So, yeah, we used to go down, we used to go fishing and smoking pot um, most days rather than actually going to school. Mark grew up in the town of Colac in the Western District of Victoria back in the 70s and 80s. Very insular town. Um, It was a very rough town. I've heard it's much better now, but back then it wasn't somewhere that really liked strangers. And what was your high school like? It was rough. One day, in his rough high school, in this rough, insular town, a new kid arrived. And he was from Canada, and he was picked on brutally. (laughs) Within, I would say, a day or two, he was, yeah, picked on because of his accent Mm. and because he was different, and there wasn't anyone different in our town. He actually ended up moving out of town very quickly afterwards. His whole family moved out of town. And so was it mostly just sort of verbal picking on on this person or did it escalate to physical as well? Yeah, no, it was physical fairly quickly. I mean, there was a lot of physical fights at the school. Teachers weren't really out and about much. And so, yeah, no, it went physical very quickly. And so how long did he last in the school before he left? Probably a week, I would say. He was there for one week? Yeah, I would say. And then his family left? Uh, He was there for a week and then he stopped coming to school and then his family left within, I would say, two or three months of that. That is incredible. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Mark's group of friends weren't the ones picking on this new kid from Canada. It was the cool kids. But what happened to that kid has stuck with him. I didn't do anything at the time, even though I felt I should. But there was no way I felt as though I could actually intervene without actually putting myself in harm as well. And especially at that that age in teenage years and trying to work out who you are and where you belong meant that, yeah, I didn't do anything and I regret that now. But yeah, it really affected me both at the time but ever since then. Mark is now Dr. Mark Williams, a cognitive neuroscientist, despite skipping all those classes in high school. And he's the author of the book, The Connected Species. He's probing how our brains became so obsessed with identifying and sticking with our in-group and how that can sometimes lead us astray in the modern world. So it's precisely why, when reading the book, a part of me was thinking, like, are we just hardwired to, you know, end up hating anyone who's not exactly like us and there's no overcoming racism and discrimination and all of it? But is that not entirely the story? No, is that what not you're tell at me? all. Not at all. Why not? We'll get into that. Today, how our brains evolve to connect and divide, and what that means for the problems we face now. For the entire 300,000-odd years we've existed as modern humans, or homo sapiens, we have always lived in groups. And our ancestors lived in groups for millions of years before that. We separated from chimpanzees around seven, eight million years ago. And chimpanzees, like us, live in groups, so we know at least that long. But over that time, what counts as a group has evolved drastically, way beyond family or clan. 
I'm a member of the Geelong Football Club and I hate Collingwood supporters. <laughs> so that's an in-group and out-group that I don't <laughs> right. like. Um, you have sporting groups, you have school groups, you have races, we have sex, we have uh, religious groups, political groups. Now that we're online, we have all these Facebook groups mm. and we have Twitter groups, which again are working on this whole in-group, out-group mentality. And Mark says the groups we belong to also change constantly based on the environments we find ourselves in. And so that's really good and really important and would have been important way back when we were in small tribes as well, because you can't keep everyone within that one little tribe or else you'll get inbreeding. So you would have had to move them out of that group. Uh, how that happened, we don't know, but we needed a system that could actually expand. But we did also need to be wary of outsiders. So our brains have actually evolved in a way that enables us to understand who is part of our in-group so that we can actually survive better. Because when we were in tribes or when we were in clans, it was really important to know who's part of your in-group and who's not part of your in-group. And we're talking before we had language. So this was before we were actually um, able to communicate with language and with writing and all these things. And so we needed a way to really quickly identify who was trustworthy and who wasn't trustworthy. And so a vast majority of our brain is about identifying who the individual is, how they're actually feeling and whether they're part of your in-group and so therefore can you trust them or, or not. And so that happens automatically and that happens really quickly and that sets off a whole bunch of responses in us physiologically. So we know that if someone's not part of your in-group, your fight or flight response goes off very quickly, which means that your heart starts racing and your blood gets pumped to your muscles and so on. Um, and all of that feels like you're stressed, but it's not. It's your fight or flight response just telling you that there's someone there that potentially isn't someone you actually want to associate with. And so that all happens automatically and it's not something we actually have control over. Uh, but most of us, I don't think, realise that that's something that we don't have control over. So we, and we, we then perceive people differently if they're a part of our in-group or our group. So we find people who are part of our in-group as more attractive than people who aren't part of our in-group. We actually hear what they say differently. So if someone's part of your in-group, you'll actually hear positive things and you won't hear the negative things in the same way. Whereas if they're part of your out-group, you'll only hear the negative things. Uh, we perceive facial expressions differently. So we actually perceive a happy face if someone's part of your in-group as a happy face. But if they're part of your out-group, you're more likely to see it as an angry or a sarcastic face. So if I look at someone like Donald Trump, for example, mm. and he's smiling, I don't think, oh, wow, he's happy, that's great. Right. I think maybe he's got something devious going on in the back right. of his head. Yeah. So a lot of room for mistakes here in our bias towards people already in our group. We also orient to people who aren't part of our in-group quicker. So our attentional mechanism, which makes us orient to different things in our environment, that goes towards people who aren't part of our in-group, um, again, to warn us. So all of these mechanisms in our brain, which are really important for us when we're evolving, are now still there and are now still working on our physiological responses and how we actually feel about people but we don't actually need them anymore. <laughs> right. So were, were those boys in your high school having all these sort of unconscious processes unfolding in their brains as they were picking on this Canadian kid? Absolutely. So all those processes would have actually started off the issue and then they're going to want to actually uh, reinforce each other's behaviour because they're part of the one in-group. So not only have you got the issue of the, here's an individual who's different and so fight or flight response goes off, but then you've got the added problem that all of those individuals are going to be wanting to be like each other so that they'll actually 
like each other and continue to be part of that in-group. So that's then going to exacerbate the issue and exacerbate the problem. And you end up with situations like that where one individual is being picked on by a group Mm. because of the fact that they're all trying to be part of that in-group. These are the processes Dr Mark Williams says we need to learn to become aware of so we don't just act out our most base impulses. But let's backtrack here and talk about how the brain goes about identifying individuals in the first place, because it needs a way to quickly identify or recognise a person before it can decide if they're a member of our group or not. And if you think about it, faces are all essentially two eyes, a nose and a mouth. So how does the brain tell the difference between the various faces we see? So faces are, as you said, they're they're just two eyes and one nose and one mouth. And the way we actually do that, which is pretty clever, is that we actually compare it to a template. So in our brains, we have a template, which is basically just the average of all the faces that we have ever seen. And we work out what the difference between each of those is from the actual template. So your face might have you know, narrower eyes than my average and your nose may be a little bit further down or a little bit further up or whatever. And so to faces that are similar to that average, we actually see as being more like us and those that are more dissimilar from that average, further away from that average, they cause that fight or flight response to be triggered. So what we want is a really broad template rather than a really Mm. narrow template. And how does this impact how we view faces that are different races? Yeah, so we know that if your face template is biased towards one particular race, because that's the race that you've seen most, then you will actually, you you recognise those individuals better. So we remember people who are part of our race better than people who aren't part of our race. But we also orient towards people who aren't part of our race quicker because we've got this alert mechanism which says this person's not part of your in-group. And of course, originally when all these systems evolved, our in-group would have been our family members, those people we're actually associating with or other people who were brought in, but usually of the same race because we didn't really travel very far in those days. So the system now goes off when it's not someone who's our race, but it wasn't set up or it wasn't, it didn't evolve that way. It just happens to be that that's the way it actually triggers it. Our biases towards our own group also develop because our brains, while sophisticated, are kind of limited too. So yes, we're capable of detecting faces and interpreting emotions and a whole lot more, but we can only do so much of that at one given time. So our brains use shortcuts. Yeah, so we have an amazingly huge long-term memory. But we don't have access to our long-term memory consciously, so we're not aware of what's in our long-term memory. What we have is a working memory, which is what we're actually aware of at any one stage. You could think of it as your consciousness, if you like. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're aware of, and that's what we can actually manipulate and play with. That's really limited. So originally we thought there was only seven slots in Mm -hmm. your working memory, which is why phone numbers used to be limited to six numbers. Oh, right. They did that on purpose. Yeah, because you couldn't actually remember more than six numbers. (laughs) And so you need one slot empty to actually do the dialing. Oh, my gosh. Because it actually uses, yeah, one slot to dial and then the rest of the numbers you can actually remember. So they think somewhere between 40 and 60% of what we do during the day is automatic and we don't consciously think about it which means that all these unconscious things are happening because we only have that really limited consciousness. And so how are we simplifying when it comes to how we treat 
or think about people in our in-groups versus out-groups. Yeah, so th- therefore we need to actually simplify that because socialising is an extremely complicated thing to do. When you're actually socialising with someone, you're reading their facial expressions. You're, you're, well, you're first you're reading their face to work out whether you know them or that you don't know them. Are they part of my in-group? What's their body telling me about how they're actually feeling based on um, body movements and so on? Mm. So all of those things happen automatically because those are the really ancient mechanisms that we've got that happen without our conscious perception. Talking, because that's a really, really recent ability, so it's only happened in the last 150, we think, 150,000 years or so. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really recent ability. And so it takes up 100% of our working memory. So we end up discriminating or stereotyping because our social worlds are so complicated, just like the rest of the world is so complicated, and we need rules in our brain to determine how to actually classify everything. And so we have rules about colours, we have rules about shadows, we have rules about people, we have rules about classes of people, we have rules about accents, we have rules about all those things which tell us that this person is whatever. And it's a simplified version of the world so that our brain can quickly activate areas so that we can respond to them because we evolved in a, in a world well before now, which was really, really scary. And we needed to respond really quickly. Yeah. I mean, what's really interesting is your accent actually has a, an effect on how much salary you get paid. Mm. So, you know, it's like... What's my Canadian accent doing for me then? <laughs> Canadian, I think, is okay. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> right. But everything, yeah, everything about us, people have rules in their brain which tell them right. things about this person and they automatically then associate that with anybody they come in contact with that has those characteristics. And are these, like, culturally learned rules that we're talking about? Like, if we are told to fear certain races or, you know, think other races are superior if that's how you're inclined, um, yeah, are these, like, cultural messages that we're, then our brain is filtering through? Yes, absolutely. So they're all learnt. Um, and so we then none of this is hardwired. This has yeah. all been learnt from a very young age. Yeah. Um, we, we don't have... A, our genetic material given to us from our parents is actually very little. There's not much information in there. So it sort of sets up what can actually be developed. And then through learning, we actually develop. So most of what we end up as is actually learnt, and especially when it comes to our cognition. And so... All of those rules that we have in our head have been learnt Mm -hmm. and we just need to unlearn them. Right. So is this precisely why, you know, when reading the book, a part of me was thinking, like, are we just hardwired to, you know, end up hating anyone who's not exactly like us and there's no overcoming racism and discrimination and all of it? But is that not entirely the story? No, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. So those are all stereotypes that we learn. And so we've got to unlearn them or we've got to not teach the next generation those same stereotypes. We've got to teach them Mm -hmm. that we're all part of this wonderful, big, connected species that's worked with each other to actually end up in this wonderful place where we are at Mm -hmm. the moment with amazing technology that we've got. But we need to actually realise that and teach everybody that and not have those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And the stereotypes come from the media, the stereotypes come from learning, the stereotypes come from um, our parents and so on. We've also got to change our templates. So our templates, of course, as I said, our face template is based on the faces that we see most. And the faces that we see most are, to begin with, our family, right? Because that's who we're hanging out with for the Mm. first three or four years of life, usually. And then it's the people in our peer group, 
who also tend to be of the same race most of the time, not mm. always, but most of the time, and also what we see in the media. So we know in the US, a lot of the studies have shown that white people have positive stereotypes and their face template is sort of tuned around at the white face as being the positive face. Right. Whereas African-Americans also have the white face as being the positive one because that's what they mostly see in the media right. um, is white people acting yeah. as the hero. And so we need to change that in the media and we need to change that in kids' book. And there's great studies showing that if you show children from a young age a whole range of faces, they don't have the orientation mm. to you know, different races and they don't have all those negative aspects that adults who didn't have that actually right. have. But they've also shown with adults you can do that as well. So if you're actually looking at lots of different faces every day, then you will, will have a more general template so it won't go off right. when you see someone from another race. This is why people of colour bang on about representation mattering, I guess. And I say that as a person of colour who bangs on about representation <laughs> mattering. It does absolutely matter. And so, and so, yeah, I guess then racism is not an inevitability? No, it's not. It's, it's, so there are two aspects to it. One, the face template we can change by yeah. just showing people lots and lots of faces from lots of different races from a young age. But even as adults, we can change that. So that's a way of changing that. And then the stereotypes we have, again, they're learnt stereotypes. So if we change those learnt stereotypes to mean that everybody's equal, then we can change that as well. In a sense, um, based on what you've talked about, uh, you know, how we evolved to live in smaller groups and clans, in a sense, you can understand how racism is a thing, but you write in the book that what's really confusing is how sexism came to be, because from an evolutionary point of view, you need male and female to procreate, so why would you be in opposition? Can you talk about what's going on there? Yeah, that's that's a crazy one. We don't know for sure how it came about, but we believe, based on every bit of information we've got, that it only occurred since we've had patriarchy, because patriarchy, of course, puts the man at the top mm -hmm. of the castle and everyone else below. And so since that's come about, it seems as though sexism came about as well as a result of that. But it doesn't make sense from an evolutionary point of view. And in terms of how patriarchy came to be, is that tied to religion? No. Well, we think patriarchy started because we went from being hunter-gatherers to having farms or having crops. Previous to having crops, males and females would have gone out and gathered food. Males and females would have looked after the kids and everything because you had a lot more time to actually do those things. Once you actually started having crops, you needed to then protect your land. All mm. of a sudden you needed to have land and you need to protect that land. And the male then would have been the more dominant of the species because they were the ones that were able to protect the land and then they would have actually felt as though they had ownership over the land. And then through... That, it seems as though we then started treating not only the land as our property, but also females as our property as well, which then, and then we had religion come on, which exacerbated it by making priests and clergy and so on only being able to be male. And then you link that to God and you link that to the king, which means that the king is also the boss. And yeah, it all sort of fell out from that. I don't think it was any malice. I don't think anybody went, let's create patriarchy, I think it just all fell out from us actually starting to own land. And then from there, it sort of exacerbated the situation. Right. And so then in order to move towards a more equal society, based on what we know about how the brain treats in-groups for sac groups, 
what's the smartest or perhaps more effective way to go about that? So to start off with, we, we have to eliminate the stereotypes that we're teaching everybody. Right. Um, and so to eliminate the stereotypes, we, we need to start in schools and we need to stop treating boys and girls differently when they're at school. We need to actually understand that these stereotypes are learnt and that there's nothing actually behind them. So there's some beautiful studies recently done where they did meta-analysis of all of the studies on the brains of males and females and show there's zero difference between a male brain and a female brain. Right. So all those books you see yeah. about the female brain are nonsense because there is no difference between a male brain and mm. a female brain and all the real research shows that there isn't one. So men aren't from Mars and women aren't from <laughs> Venus. We've talked about a lot of the negative aspects of our drive to create in-groups versus out-groups like discrimination, like sexism, racism. But what are some of the benefits of belonging to a group? Oh, there's huge, huge benefits to belonging. There's huge mental health benefits to being part of a group. So we know that people who are lonely have more likely to have mental health issues, whereas if you're actually part of a group, you're more likely to have positive mental health and also to live longer if you're actually part of a group, actually just socialising with somebody, sitting down like we are, chatting to somebody, activates more of our brain than anything else we can do. So if you mm. actually want to have a healthy brain and if you actually want to live for longer and not get things like neurodegenerative diseases, mm -hmm. what you want to do is sit down with someone and chat with them regularly, right. which is awesome because it's an easy thing to yeah. do. But it's not something that we actually do a lot these days. We do that less these days than we ever have in the past. But that activates more of our brains and keeps more of our brains healthy than anything else we can do. So there's really positive benefits from that. Also, we just feel safe and secure when we have somebody we can actually talk to. So sadly, we're in this loneliness epidemic at the moment. Kids in schools these days are lonelier than they ever have been in the past. But we need to get a past that because it's so important to have people who you feel part of your in-group so that you can actually feel acknowledged and part of something so therefore your mental health and all these other things thrive. Both those things you just mentioned in terms of, you know, keeping our brain healthy by chatting to people and combating loneliness, all of that plus so many other reasons make social media seem like just the worst thing we could possibly be engaging in at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always been the worst thing we could ever engage in. Um, it's not social. That's the biggest problem. It shouldn't be called social media because there's nothing social about it. What we're doing is we're viewing what other people are doing. Um, that's not social. Being social is actually interacting with someone and we're not interacting with someone when we're just viewing them from afar. And I talk about in the book that, you know, one of the ways social media could become social is if they had a little button on there where they said, I want to meet up with someone and I'm in this spot, mm. where are you? And it linked up to anybody who's actually close by. The, according to Tristan Harris, uh, he suggested doing that when he was working at Facebook mm -hmm. and they said no, because that would mean people would actually meet up with each other. And get offline. And get offline. Oh, and wow. that's not what they want, right? They right. want to actually keep us online and keep us at a distance from each other because then they actually make more money because they're selling our attention. So, yeah, they're not good, but they're also not good because they use our in-group, out-group mentality to, to an nth degree, right? They actually, that's what they're all about. The groups on Facebook are about creating groups that you feel as though you're part of and you actually want to stay part of that and they have influences within those groups that actually then draw you away from your, your real groups, which are your family groups and your school groups and all those things mm. and into these awful, awful places. Yeah. 
it seems to be overall, if we're talking broadly about our ability to connect and our drive to connect, it seems to be like a story of being able to connect is uh, what made us successful as a species. It's what makes us human. But it's also what can easily be manipulated Um, because when we connect, we also divide because we're seeking to connect with those in our group. And so it could lead to our downfall in a sense, whether it's through social media ripping us apart or just discrimination in the real world leading to hate, leading to wars even, you know, perhaps our very end. Like if I scale this all the way up, I'm, I'm thinking this could be the best thing about us, but it could also be the worst thing about us. Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's like a coin, right? There's two sides to it. And one is a really, really positive thing, which means that we, we've, I mean, we've done amazing things. We can live anywhere in the world, which no other species has actually done. We collaborate across continents. Um, you know, we've created computers and we've flown to the moon and we've done amazing things because of the fact that we specialise and because we collaborate across huge groups, which is just amazing. Um, and I think... Based on that, we can solve the problems that we've got if we all work together to actually solve them. But I think governments need to actually legislate. Governments need to decide that they actually want to do something about this. When we first, when we had TV and advertisement came around on TV, we had subliminal messages. And as soon as the government realised, they actually made it illegal straight away Mm. because it was influencing behaviour without people actually knowing about it. These companies now are doing far worse when it comes to the algorithms Mm. that they run in the background to actually manipulate what we're actually doing. And until the governments actually stand up and do that, I think we're probably in, yeah, in in a bit of trouble. But I think also as society, we can decide that we're not going to do this anymore. So I was really pleased to see that they're going to ban smartphones from high schools in New South Wales. It's about time they did that, right? Several states have already done it. Huge amount of research showing that it's actually really beneficial for mental health and for education. And so why not do it? Coming back to what happened in your high school, that Canadian kid who was bullied out of town, in terms of why that event still weighs on your mind all these years later, like you must feel pretty strongly about that, that you remember it all these years later and that you put it in a book. Why do you think it affected you so much? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think it, it, it affected me for multiple reasons. One, it didn't fit with what I would have expected of myself back then, but I didn't feel as though I had a choice. I also, at the time, felt as though I was an outsider and he was an outsider being tormented and having kids now Mm. really, you know, brings back your own childhood. And uh, I would hope that if my kids were in the same situation, someone would actually stand up. And I'm hoping my kids, yeah, are better than I was and they would stand up for someone if they were in the same situation. Um, But yeah, yeah, it's not a nice thing to remember. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing about that is it's almost not an unusual schoolyard story. I mean, although it's awful, it's not unusual, which is why I was sort of, you know, I wondered about like kids in particular, why from such a young age we're driven to exclude and include. And I guess that's just, yeah, 
our evolutionary wiring coming into play before we've learned to really control ourselves. Mm. Yeah, so our frontal lobes, our, our prefrontal cortex in particular, which is what actually um, controls our executive functions, so what's right and wrong and whether or not we should do something or not do something, that isn't fully functional until we're 25. So, you know, in those young kids, that area of the brain basically isn't really working mm. much at all. So they're just responding to their physiological responses and to those really automatic responses, and so they don't actually stop and think mm about why they're doing it. Um, but there is also, of course, some learning going on there. Before that happened, which meant that strangers were someone you attacked rather than strangers were someone you avoided or strangers right. were someone, yeah. And so that's what we do need to realise is that kids are doing that, but they're doing it because they've learned mm. that this is how we respond to this situation. So that's where cultural messaging is colliding with... Our brains. Our brains. Evolution. Yeah. yeah, because if we're taught from a young age that if you feel this way, then you should think about it <laughs> and you should walk away from the situation or you should talk to the person, then that's very different to if you feel this way, you should physically respond to it or attack it, then you're going to respond differently in those situations. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to teach kids. That is Dr. Mark Williams, cognitive neuroscientist and author of The Connected Species, How the Evolution of the Human Brain Can Save the World. That's it for All in the Mind. Thanks to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer Hamish Camilleri. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.